church. It is a gift to be here with you. My name is Justin, one of the elders and pastors here at Peninsula Grace, and just a sweet thing to turn our eyes together uh, to the Ancient of Days, one place where our complete joy can be found in the face of Jesus, and I can't wait for that day when he comes back and we get to see him in skin and bones. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 15 this morning as we continue to walk through uh, the Gospel of John together. Today's message is called Grapes of Love, which is a play on the Steinbeck classic, uh, Grapes of Wrath, or for some of you, you know the classic in vegetable form, if you were a child of the 90s, um, or 2000s probably. But a few years back, I uh, got an old record player, old school record player for Christmas, probably actually more new school as well, it had Bluetooth capability, but um, I love the record player, I love the crackle and the pop. And I love listening to the Beatles records some Bob Dylan for as long as my wife can tolerate his answers. Blow it in the wind, right? She loves Bob Dylan. Uh, but the, let the record show. We got this uh, before we ever had a child and, and things have changed. Uh, one of Lucy's favorite things right now is dancing to music. And uh, we love it too. And, but when she uh, requires us to dance with her and spin and spin and spin until we get vertigo, uh, it presents some challenges. And the problem, one of the main problems is she loves to make this a hands-on experience. So she wants to move toward the record player with her little fingers of wrath and destruction. And uh, so I say, Lucy, sweetheart, please don't touch the record player because you're going to break it and then we can't dance to the music together. Well, sure enough, the one time I'm not paying attention, uh, we're in the middle of a swinging peanuts jam session and I hear the record scratching. And not a cool, like, Lucy the DJ, wicka wicka, like, type thing. It's she's dragging the arm of the record player across the Peanuts album, right? And, and, you know, I want nothing more than to dance with my daughter. But she, at this point in her life, has got to let me play the music, right? That'll be Pastor Justin, PJ, the DJ in our house. That's how we roll. Uh, and, and I want, and, and look, of course, like, I want. Like her best, right? Part of parenting, though, is disciplining, di discipling, same root word. So when she doesn't listen, we've got to redirect, right? We've got to teach her, instruct her. And by definition, it's her own disobedience to our words that is um, causing us to not be able to dance, dance to the music, keeping her from joyfully dancing with us. And, and this is similar in our lives with the Father. Our God created us to dance with him. He wants nothing short than our complete joy, intimacy with the Father. But we've got to let him play the music. We've got to let him play the music. My attempts, like Lucy, uh, end up just scratching the record and ruining the dance. And I tried this for, for years of my life when it came to pornography. I, I saw, I was trying to play the record of immediate gratification. My father kept repeatedly saying to me, son, don't touch the record player or you're going to scratch it. You're, you're ruining the dance. It took me almost 20 years right, to get my hands off the record player, trusting his ways. And I've tried, I've tried, right, like Lucy, to try to control the record player of my own life. My timing, my way, God, and each time uh, leads to nothing but deeper and deeper scratches. And by definition... It is my own disobedience 
um, that, that separates me from the, the joyful dance that the Father delights to engage with me in. We want control of, of the record player. We struggle, don't we, to trust our God with the playlist of our life. That's a scary thing. But dancing with the Father is only going to work when we, when we dance to his melodies, which are for our complete joy. As we travel together through the Gospel of John, we're in the upper room with the disciples, hours before Jesus is about to be betrayed and, and die. And in today's passage, this is what Jesus is teaching his followers. He's saying, I'm, I'm here to bring you into the complete joy of dancing with me and my Father to the soundtrack of his love. But there are some things that he needs to teach his dear little children, things that he needs them to trust and obey in order for that joy to be complete. And we need to hear these things to trust and obey him as well today. So if you'd open your Bible, John 15, and walk through the first 17 verses together, Jesus is going to teach a metaphor uh, to his, use a metaphor to teach his disciples about the gardener's vine and its branches. And the first thing we see in this metaphor is the heart of the gardener, which is for fruitfulness in his disciples. Look at me in John 15. Uh, we'll start at the beginning there in verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. This is the seventh and final of Jesus' I am statements. This is the only one of the I am statements that he incorporates his father into the imagery. I'm the true vine, and my father is the true guard is the gardener. Now, they're living in an agrarian world, and so this metaphor would have mapped on. This was a normal, everyday life experience for many of them uh, working in the vineyards. In, in the Old Testament, we see this imagery playing out as well. And, the, and Israel was the representative vine in the metaphor. But in the Old Testament, it's always, God's always using that metaphor to point to Israel's failure to produce good fruit that would please the Father. And then, therefore, it was always corresponding with God's judgment on the nation. He says, I'm going to uproot your vine from the promised land if you continue in disobedience. Israel was dancing to their own tune and scratching the record. Now here, I love the word, the adjective Jesus uses. He says, I am the true vine. I'm, I'm the true vine. Now, Jesus was the one to whom Israel was pointing to all along. Because it's only Jesus that could produce good fruit that would please his father, the gardener. And that's why Israel and all of their laws and the temple and their feasts were all shadows pointing to Jesus. That, that Jesus would supersede Israel as the, as the center point of God's people, of all tongues and tribes and nations. And so Jesus goes on then to verse 2. He says, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now, using a metaphor they would track with, Jesus says, if you break the branch off of the vine, it's fruitless. And the two points that he makes here specifically are that the Father cuts off every branch that's not bearing fruit, without exception here. And he prunes every, without exception, branch that is bearing fruit. Now, there's some tough truth in this, right? E even for those who are bearing fruit, he says it's, it's a pruning. And pruning can be a painful process. But this maps on to what, what we read in Hebrews when it says, The Lord disciplines those he loves 
like a father with a child. He's disciplining for their best. The purpose here is so that they, what does it say? So that they will produce more fruit. This is in the interest of the, the branch, even when it's a painful procedure. And this is, this is how we are trying to parent our daughter. When we discipline, disciple Lucy not to touch the record player, this is ultimately for her own dancing joy, right? So she can keep flinging those ribbons around. Now, is Jesus here saying, you notice the language here. He says, the branches in me, if they're not bearing fruit, they will be removed. So is Jesus speaking to a believer in Christ who then loses their salvation if they're not bearing enough fruit? Um, remember, this is a metaphor Jesus is using. And all metaphors have a, a limitation of what they're trying to accomplish, of what, they're, what the analogy is, is trying to, to say. So if you press the grapes too far, you're going to get messy, right? And so we see here, I think Jesus, to, to use this analogy, is, is, show, is teaching the basic truth that only those connected to him are going to bear fruit. So he, he could have used an example of like a dead branch laying on the ground over here, but it wouldn't have made sense with what he was saying. I, think, I don't think his point is we're going to yank you out if you're not bearing enough fruit. He's just simply saying you must, the, that fruitfulness is the mark of every branch that is connected to Jesus' vine. If you're not bearing fruit, then you're not connected to Jesus. And this is so important for us to see in this passage. The heart of the gardener is for the, his vine to bear fruit. That's, that's what he wants. That's why they, the vine was created, was planted. So we got to ask ourselves, like, are, if we're connected to Jesus, are we bearing fruit? And as we'll see in a second, we got to get the order right. We don't bear fruit in order to then be connected to the vine. We bear fruit because we already are connected to the life source. And then he says in verse 3, he says, I look down at verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now he says, you are already clean. He's talking to his disciples because of the word I spoke. This is the same language that Jesus just used two chapters ago. When Peter said, well, wash all of me. And he said, no, you're already clean, Peter. Why? Because of the words I've spoken. The only way that any of us can become cleansed in Jesus or connected to Jesus is believing his words. Hearing and receiving by faith the truth claims he's making about himself. So how are you clean and connected? It's to place our faith in who Jesus says to us that he is. But so how do we, the branches, bear this fruit? As we're connected to Jesus. Jesus says there is, there is only one way. And for that he turns to verse 4. The necessity of the vine for fruitfulness in us. How much we need the, the, the vine. So like most of you I've, I've come to depend on my, um, my smartphone as kind of a second brain. This is where you know, all of my reminders, my calendar, my contact list, my text calls. Like my whole life is in this little rectangular box. right? And, and most importantly it's where I check my fantasy basketball team. Um, which reminds me, can you guys take, oh, no. um, there, there, there is nothing more terrifying, this isn't hyperbole, but um, if I'm on a road trip and all of a sudden I realize, forgot the charger. You had that scary moment, right? And, and you realize once this battery's drained, it's game over. My, my phone is worthless, right? I'm going to have no idea what my fantasy team is doing for like two days, right? But it, it all, all of a sudden, this device my second brain becomes nothing more than a super expensive paperweight. 
And Jesus is, is using this analogy to talk about our relationship with him. Look at verse 4. He says, remain in me and I in you. And just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So Jesus is saying, like my cell phone without a charger, the branch has absolute, absolutely no, no life in itself. It is utterly dependent on the vine. And Jesus said in verse 2 that the, the God's purpose for our lives as his disciples is to bear much fruit. So he says you've got to be connected to the vine to do that. Now what Jesus is not saying is that he comes to us and we, or we come before him like he's Simon Cowell on American Idol. And that we've got to come and, and bear enough fruit to impress him. Then he still looks at us and, and he goes, you know, that was dreadfully boring. Your fruit stinks. It's a no for me, right? And you're, you're like kicked out, right? He just heart, heartlessly has a, you know, snobby British laugh as you are chucked out and wither and burn and all this kind of scary stuff that's going on in this text, right? Like what, what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you're not connected to me, by definition, you don't have life. You cannot bear fruit. We're literally disconnected from our source of life. And like a branch that's been broken off, and all that's going to happen is we're going to wither and die. And that's the story of the human race. We become nothing but, a, but an expensive paperweight. And what Jesus says here is, he says, man, without me, you can do nothing. Like without Jesus in our lives, the best we can do is staple grapes to the vine which I heard was a thing, but it, I'm not going to let that ruin my analogy here. Um, so humans, humans can do good things, right? The atheist, the agnostic, the Buddhist, the, the, the Muslim, or whatever, can donate to charity. They can, they can take care of their grandparents. They can tip well. They probably tip better than, than me, right? Uh, but we can only glorify the gardener, which is our purpose, if we remain in the vine when we dance to his song for his glory. I like the words of, of Derek Webb. He said, you can make your life look good. You can do what Jesus would, right, WWJD, but you'd be surprised what you can do with a hard heart. How often do we do the right thing for the wrong motives? It is not for the glory of God. It is not for the good of, of our neighbor. It's ultimately for, for our, our own sake. And Paul is clear in Corinthians 13, without love, you can throw yourself in the flames, but it's a, it's a gong and it's worthless. And we can fool each other with stapled grapes, right? We can fool each other and make our life look good, but before the all-wise God, he knows what is done unto his glory and what is not. And this is why the old covenant was so insufficient. When we try to keep the law, when we try to obey God without the right kind of heart, it's just grape stapling, Right? Real organic growth can only happen when we have the right inside working itself outwardly. And this is why the new covenant in Jesus was necessary. That, that only Jesus could renew our heart so that we could bear true fruit that would honor the king. 
which is exactly where he takes us here in the last point of the metaphor. The purpose of our fruitfulness is for the glory of the gardener. Look at verse 8. He says, my father is, dis- is glorified by this. And here's where he receives glory. That you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, if you think about a gardener, and you said, what is the, how do we know if a, if a gardener is great? Like, what would be the qualifications of a great gardener? Well, it's in their fruit, right? What they produce. If their fruit stinks, they could be a great guy and a lousy gardener, right? It's all about the fruit that the gardener produces. And similarly here, the father's greatness is seen in his creation, in the fruit of his labor, namely you and I and the lives that we live. And and so he says in verse 8 here, my father is glorified in my disciples bearing much fruit. This is actually how you'll know. This is the identity marker of a follower of Jesus. And remember, we've, we've been saying that the glory of God is his beauty made visible. And so what Jesus is teaching here is the way the world's going to see the beauty of the ancient of days that we were just singing about is when we produce his fruit as his followers. But what does this look like? Like, what does this mean? Like, we're pretty abstract right now, right? To abide in the vine, to produce fruit. What does this really mean in our lives, and how do we actually do that? Well, this second part of the teaching, Jesus is going to show us what is, what's the metaphor, right? What's the point of this teaching? Remaining in Jesus' love. So first, let's look at the method of how we do this remaining or abiding. Uh, Down in verses 9 and 10, Jesus now, he says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So what did Jesus just say? How do we remain in in his love? He says, we, we keep his commands. Just as, he says, as I keep my father's commands and thereby remain in his love. Now, again, you know, some of us have the, the little indicator lights going off. And wait, is this legalism? Is this saying we've got to obey? I thought we were in the New Testament now. Aren't we done with laws and commands? And we're just believing in Jesus. And, and that's kind of all we need to do. Well, the key here is what Jesus said. He said, remain in my love. And maybe more traditionally in your translation might say, abide in my love. The word here means to dwell or reside. So remain, stay. Our love needs to find its home in Jesus who dwells or has his home, abides, remains in and us. And there's a couple caveats here to understand what Jesus is saying. First of all, he's not saying we we love or we obey him to earn his love for us, but we love, right, because we or we, we, because we already are loved by Jesus. He compares, again, his relationship to the Father as ours to his. And as what have we been seeing in the Gospel of John? That Jesus knows that he's loved by his Father. He never wavers from that. He has a, a complete trust in his Father and his Father's heart for him. And it's out of that perfect trust, knowing he's loved by the Father, that he wants to do his father's will, wants to keep his father's command. And so us in Christ, we first learn to trust and rest in the permanent love we have in Christ before the father. And we start obeying because we want to. That's what inside out fruit is going to look like. The second caveat here is Jesus is not presenting what we call a false choice. He's not saying, 
perfectly obey every single thing that I've ever told you, or the first sign of any kind of disobedience, you're cut off, you're chopped up, you're in the fire. That's not the teaching here. Jesus is showing us the ultimate standard. It's him and his father. And, of course, Jesus is showing us what perfect obedience looks like. He's God. That's why he's the only qualified sacrifice for us. But he knows this will be a process for us, a long, slow, messy, failure-ridden process. Just like the grapes growing on the vine, they don't just pop out the first second, right? It takes time for that growth to happen. Legalism is the grapeling, right? The grape stapling. That's just saying just instantly, there should be instant fruit right away, perfect obedience. What Jesus is teaching is that it takes time for the spirit in us to teach us and strengthen us to understand the love of the Father for us in Christ. And then it will slowly but surely start to show itself through fruit in our lives. That's why I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. When he prays, he says, that I pray for you, that the Spirit would give you strength. Strength for what? Strength for Jesus and his love to be able to make its home in you. And that the Spirit would teach you how long, how wide, how deep, how, how high is the Father's love for you in Christ Jesus. And as we start to understand this, it will manifest itself in the way that we live our lives. The method of remaining is by lovingly obeying Jesus and his commands. What's the result of this remaining? Complete joy. Look at verse 11. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. We've got to understand, what did he just say? Here's why I'm telling you these things. So that, this is for your joy. Like obedience to Jesus, is his intent is not to make us miserable. It's for our supreme joy. In fact, it's the only path to true joy. And this is so countercultural, right? Like our modern day mantra is you do you. Or as Winnie the Pooh here says, number one rule in life, do what makes you happy. That ain't Winnie the Pooh, that's Winnie the heretic, right? The only joy that we're going to find in a fallen world apart from Jesus, it's shallow, it's incomplete, and it's momentary. And we know this, right? Like we've tried looking for joy in all the wrong places. And it hasn't lasted. It hasn't satisfied like, we know this by experience. And, you know, Lucy still thinks that her, her joy is going to be found in doing what she wants. So that's why she keeps going over and trying to touch the record player. And it's going to be a process, right? It's a long process for our daughter to learn to trust her parents. And that our heart is for her joy. And then when she trusts us and obeys us, it's for her dancing joy. To share in Jesus' joy. Listen. It is to share in his obedience, which can feel so counterintuitive. Think about this. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to be in the garden, staring down his betrayer and the Roman soldiers. Like, he knows what's coming. And to obey his father's will is going to go against every self-protective instinct in your body. And this is going to feel so counter counterintuitive for us as well. When Jesus says love other people more than, you know, before yourself. I mean, there's times when, when, when pressing into community is the last thing our hearts want to do. And so we isolate and we run and we fear and we hide and we do our own thing. When he says it's better, it's actually more blessed to give than receive. When every bone in our body says, no, 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 take, take, take. 
When he says die to self, and that sounds so counterintuitive to, to this self-protection and me-first mentality that I've been walking in for years. So we ask our, our, our own hearts, like what area of our life do we, need, do we need to trust that obedience to Jesus is actually for our joy, even when it feels deathly? This is the result of remaining is for our joy. And then the context of this remaining is the circle dance of friends. The circle dance of friends. Look down at verse 12. He says, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. So he said, to abide in me is to obey my command. So what's his command? Well, he says it. He reiterates what he said in John 13. Love one another as I've loved you. And what does that love look like? Well, he says in verse 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, what's this love look like? Laying your life down for the good of your friends. And is it Jesus not about to walk this out in the next 24 hours as he goes to the cross? To love another is to, to will their good ahead of my own, no matter the cost to myself. A love that Jesus showed us. And then he says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. You're my friends if you do what I command. Now again, we get the order right. He's not saying first be awesome at loving like that and then I will make you my friends. Jesus is saying this kind of sacrificial love is a characteristic of those who are my friends. The world will know you're a friend of Jesus when you love sacrificially like Jesus loves. And then he says in verse 15, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. He talks about obeying him. And so it's easy to get this mentality of like a, just a servant or a slave that, that obeys his master. But what is Jesus here? How does he differentiate a servant and a, and, a, and a friend? Well, notice here he says, because you know what your master's doing. I've told, I've made everything known to you from my father. It, revelation is the difference. So, so a slave is just a tool that you use. And you don't bring them into the process. A friend, and, in, and that day, I mean, the friend was the highest hallmark of intimacy. A friend is brought in and dignified as a partner. So I've told you exactly what I'm doing, and I'm inviting you into that process, which is a really good leadership principle for us as well. Like, a good leader dignifies the team around them, invites them into the process, and doesn't just boss them around or bark out orders uh, at tools. And man, what a beautiful gospel reminder here, isn't it? Like, we as sinners, we don't even deserve to be slaves or servants of Jesus, let alone his friends. But here, the one who is scandalously called in the Gospels the friend of sinners, and that wasn't meant as a compliment, he laid down his life for us. Like, while we were his enemies, so that he could call us friends, so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. He showed us the full revelation of who God is and the plans that he has for us and invited us into that process. What a savior. Invited us into that circle dance as friends. And then what's the mission? What's the mission of remaining, of abiding in Jesus? It's to expand that dancing circle. Look at verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he will give you. 
just in case the disciples started getting cocky and going, look at us. We're in the inner circle dancing with Jesus. Jesus reminds them, hey, I chose you, right? I chose to reveal who I am as way, truth, and life to you particularly. And not exactly because you were the cream of the crop, right? Like, have you read the Gospels? Like, this was not, like, the A-team. This was not varsity uh, uh, men. Like, he uses the foolish to shame the wise. He uses the weak to shame the strong. So when God chooses to send you, don't get a big head, right? He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. So it's important here. You probably saw the language of choosing, right? I chose you. And so we have those questions about God's election and kind of what does that look like. And I always invite people, let's look at the context here when he uses that choosing language. Because choosing elections in the Bible, that's not debatable. But the question is, and I would say always ask three questions for context. First of all, who is doing the choosing? Who is being chosen? And what are they being chosen for? And what do we see here in verse 16? Jesus says, I chose you. And who did he choose? Who's the you here specifically? The 11 disciples, right? Sorry, Judas, you're, you're excluded from this, this point at this point. I've chosen you. And what does he say he's chosen them for? To go and produce fruit that remains in my father's name. This is a fruit-bearing mission that he's chosen them for. Now, in the Jewish world, again, he's flipping this thing on its head because typically it was the disciple or the student that would choose the rabbi. They would, they would say, that's a guy I want to be my, my life teacher. And they would pursue a relationship with the rabbi, and the rabbi would decide if they would come. But how do we, we know the story of the Gospels. Jesus approached them, said, drop your nets, let's go. Now, they still had to make the choice to follow him, but he initiated with them. He chose his disciples. And it says here, he chose them, set them apart for what? A particular ministry to bear fruit. And I think here in 16, this is a reference to taking the gospel into the world. And I think we see this over and over again as a pattern in scripture. The Bible shows us God doesn't choose from like, he doesn't choose people at the exclusion of others. He chooses us for, for mission, to serve others. That's the people of Israel. I chose them from the nations, not, in, not because God didn't love the other nations, but he says to Abraham, it's through your nation, I'm going to bless all nations. He chose them for the specific mission of saving the world, which, of course, ultimately came through Jesus. Now, what's the fruit in the disciples' lives here? I think it's, in the context, it's more disciples. This is a reminder of our mission today as, as Jesus' disciples, right? Every disciple is chosen by Jesus for the purpose of going out into the world and bearing more fruit to invite others into the dance, right? We want to expand the circle, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and his friends dancing in the circle of love, and we want to invite more people into the tune that he's playing on the record player. And this is the nature of the love grapes that Jesus is producing through us. We're not called to be an exclusive club, the holy huddle, right? A Christian clique that doesn't let other people in. It's a love that by definition longs to bring more people into the dance just as Jesus evidenced in his life mission from the Father. And what a grace and a kindness that God would choose us, the foolish and shameful things of the world, for his wisdom and his grace. So the question, of course, is also who are we inviting into the dance? Like who in our life that doesn't know Jesus are we actively beckoning 
by God's grace to join us to connect to the vine. Here in John 15, Jesus says the purpose of his disciples' lives is to glorify the gardener by bearing fruit. But then he said the stark words, you can't do this without me. Like he makes no bones about it. This is, this is intense language. Apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing that glorifies the Father. But it's also abstract language, right? Like what does it mean, again, to bear fruit by abiding in Jesus? Like I want, I want to know and I want us to know, how do I walk this out tomorrow morning in my life? One of the more helpful tools I've found um, in this regard is, is an is a acronym by John Piper. Uh, it's, the acronym is APTAT. It doesn't make an actual word, but we'll roll with it. Um, and I, and I want to preface by saying I'm not, this is not a magical formula. It's not an equation or a spell that if you do this, you just instantly bear Jesus' love grapes. Like, that's not the point. But we need a, a framework. Right? How do we walk this thing out? You know, and so I think this is a really helpful way to put some feet to Jesus' call to abide in the vine. So I'll use one of my most common illustrations when I pray through this acronym is driving to work in the morning. This is hipster Justin, apparently. But um, as I'm driving into work, I'll kind of walk through this, this framework. But you can apply this to any situation in your life. Maybe you're facing a trial and don't know how to, how to handle, how do I engage with this by abiding in Jesus? Maybe you're making a difficult decision in your life. Maybe it's just knowing how to interact at the workplace or with your spouse or your child. This can walk out in any of those situations. So the first A there is to admit that you can do nothing without Jesus. This is what Jesus is teaching here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is just simply admitting this, right? The first step for Lucy is admitting I am uh, too young to successfully operate this record player without breaking it, right? Admitting is the first step. I am a task-oriented person. So it's easy for me to see other people as bothersome interruptions, right? What a fabulous pastor you hired. Um, so as I'm driving to work, I'm like, Father, I cannot love the people crossing my path on my own. I can't do it. I can't love other people around me, even coworkers and, and people in our body that I like, right? I cannot love them sacrificially, selflessly like Jesus does on my own. And so the first step is just to simply admit that. I can't, Lord. And the second thing would be to pray for help. And this is what Jesus teaches here. Look at what he said in verse 7. He said, he said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want. Ask, right? And it will be done for you. And so the second step here is simply asking him to do through us what we can't do on our own. And this is what we're teaching Lucy, right? To ask, please. So she comes up and goes, peace, peace, cummy, cummy dance. I'm like, how do you, that's not fair. Like, how do you, how do you say no to that? No! She's like, yeah, cummy, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. I love, Ray, Ray Ortland says, um, prayer is just weakness going toward God. That was a beautiful definition. Prayer is just weakness going to God. And we recognize our weakness. As I'm driving to work, I just say, Father, like, I am weak on my own. Like, I can do nothing without you. So I need Jesus to do through me what I can't do. To love my coworkers, the people I'm meeting with. Lord, would you, would your son love through this vessel? So we admit we can't, and then we pray to the one who can. And then, uh, and this is so helpful to me, trust a specific promise. Trust a specific promise of God and his word. Notice what he says in verse 7. This is the promise. Ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. Now, when we're abiding, we're asking along the will of the, the gardener, right? But he says, if you ask this, like, it will be done for you. And, and notice here, he says, if my, my words remain in you, 
So this is so important that we don't hold God to promises he didn't make in the first place. A lot of my disappointment and expectations come when he failed a promise that I had in my head, but he never told me in his word. And so I so said, what specific words of Jesus are here? He tells us, man, we, you are my friends, and I have laid down my life for you. Like, we operate out of what Jesus has said that he's done for us and who he is with us every day. We operate out of that, and then, and then we look at these, these specific these words. Because, man, I don't know about you. I know all this information, but the moment I step out the door, how easy it is for, to forget it. I step into the workplace, and it's just like all of a sudden it just vanished. And so we need to reorient ourselves to the words of Jesus. If you ask me, I will do it. We told Lucy, if you ask, we will dance, right? And to be a good father is to keep my word. So I will dance. And she says, peace, right? And Jesus said here, if you abide in the vine, I will bear fruit, fruit through you. So we're just holding Jesus to his promise. You said if I abide in you, Jesus, you will love others through me. So I'm just holding you to that promise. And then, the, then, then we actually act. We do it. We do what Jesus said to do. And how, that's how he summarizes this passage in verse 17. This is what I command you. Love one another. If we trust him, we will obey him. And so I go to work and I actually remain in Jesus and love. And again, this isn't to earn his love. This is resting in the love I have before the Father in my identity in Christ. And so I act. I love the people in my path. And so it's obeying all that he's commanded us, right? Like what does the word of God say how I act with others? It says love is patient. Love is kind. So I exercise patience and kindness. I listen before I speak, right? I I. I consider others before me. I come and say, how can I help and serve you, not how can you help and serve me? I speak the truth in love. I'm not arrogant. I don't condemn others. Right? I, I obey what Jesus is. I dance to the Father's tune. I act. And then, and this is such an important final step, to thank God for his provision and his goodness, to say thank you. And that's what he said in verse 8, my Father is glorified in you producing fruit and showing yourself to be disciples. So I would say we glorify God in the very act of loving. We're showing his beauty. Then we also glorify God in acknowledging the acts came from him in the first place, right? That we, I say, God, thank you, God. Like, I trusted you, and it happened, right? I, I, abide, I, I, tr I asked for the fruit-bearing love of Jesus, right? And then I saw it in action. And so I'm like the leper returning back to the healer and simply saying, Thank you. Glory to you, Father. You did it through me. And that's why the, the, the glory is due him, right? All things from, through, and to him. And my, my experience has been to, to do this in the small things as I'm driving to work in the morning, just kind of the normal rhythms of life. And that builds up like a weightlifter. You don't start by a 300-pound deadlift, right? You, you build up that muscle so that when the big things come, that unexpected phone call, the trial of life that rocks your world, this becomes habit of the heart. This, this becomes a heart posture default to abide in the vine. We're, we're invited here, guys, to, to bear fruit that glorifies God, to dance with the Trinity by trusting Jesus in his word and to invite others into that circle. Our Father wants our joy. If we trust that, we will walk in his ways. Father, I just 
just ask for the grace to trust you more. Like, I know this. I just preached it. But I, I hear in my own heart the whispers of doubt, the default position back to self. And so, Lord, we just we admit that we can't do this on our own. We ask you to walk this truth out in our lives. We trust what you just told us in your word, that if we abide, you will bear the fruit. And so might we go out today, tomorrow, this week, and obey Jesus' commands because we are learning by his grace to trust his words in us. And then remind us to turn back around and with grateful hearts look at all the fruit that you bore in and through us by your grace for your glory. It's in the name of the good vine that we pray to the gardener. All God's people said.